Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. I've got a fantastic guest today, Dr. John Sullivan, a sports scientist and clinical sports psychologist with over 20 years of clinical and scholarly experience. He currently works with the NFL, English Premiership, NCAA, and elite military in the U.S. And today he's going to talk to us all about how the brain is really the most ultimate and complex survival system we have here on the planet and the universe. Um... He'll talk about, in sport, this idea of linear progressions in physical capacity, even in mental performance, and how the limitations of linear progressions. He'll discuss overtraining, symptoms of overtraining, and what coaches and clinicians can look out for um, in, in athletes, those warning signs that will let us know that we're pushing towards not only overtraining, but what he, de- he describes as trauma. He'll also discuss the intimate role of sleep and what happens to the brain during sleep, uh, which is key for mental and physical performance. He'll look at methods for evaluating central nervous system recovery, as well as myths around mental toughness and grit. So there's just a ton of great stuff here by Dr. John Sullivan. His book, his new book, The Brain Always Wins, is a phenomenal resource as well. So please tune in. my notes, layups, performance hacks at drbubs forward slash podcast. Check those out, and I hope you enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Dr. John Sullivan, a sports scientist and clinical sports psychologist with over 20 years of clinical and scholarly experience. He currently holds appointments within the NFL, the English Premier League, the NCAA, and the elite military and law enforcement in the U.S., Dr. Sullivan is also a visiting scholar and sports scientist at the Queensland Academy of Sport and the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. He has established expertise as national and international practitioner researcher who conducts central nervous system measurement assessment, performance optimization, and concussion assessment rehabilitation. He is a frequent contributor writing on sports science and sports medicine, and his latest efforts have focused on a series of books which distills the latest performance psychology, Cognitive Science and Neuroscience Related to Optimal Brain Performance and Health, entitled The Brain Always Wins. John, thanks for taking the time out today, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, listen, you've got such an extensive background. Can you start by telling the listeners how you got into sport performance and the clinical sports psychology side of things? Sure, sure. Um, I, I actually was a, an NCAA Division One athlete, and so as I started that journey, academic and athletic journey, it always occurred to me that obviously the the physical part of the sport does matter in, in every sport and endurance sport. I was an endurance athlete, uh, track and field and cross country, and also competed uh, professionally in cycling. That you know that that repetition for cardiac, thoracic output, VO2 max, those types of things do matter. There's no doubt. Um, but it always occurred to me there seemed to be more to the story. Uh, and that led me to being looking and researching and trying to answer that question, okay, what else is out there and how can I improve performance? And I was lucky enough uh, in my undergrad to have someone who was a clinical psychologist who had a proper proficiency in sport. And he was smart enough to teach me that, you know, great. This is a great, but there's so much more in the area of psychology and then also the other biological sciences. So that really kind of drew, drew me in 
wanting to advance uh, my own performance. And then the research and the excitement about that uh, drew me in more. Definitely. I mean, it's incredible how obviously it's been building for a while, but today, you know, everything around brain and cognitive performance is such a huge area. And of course, you know, you kick your book off with a great quote, um, which I'll read here, that there are 100 billion neurons in the adult human brain, and each neuron makes something like 1,000 to 10,000 contacts with other neurons in the brain. Based on this, people have calculated the number of permutations and combinations of brain activity exceeds the number of elementary particles in the universe. Now, that's a pretty mind-boggling stack. Can you speak to the evolution of the human brain and how, this, how it really acts as a governor in everything that we do? Yeah, very much so. And, and one of the things is if you actually take some, you know, from a microscopic level and looking at neurons of the brain and you compare it to a picture of the universe, they look a lot alike. And it's a quite a fascinating thing to see side by side. But it, but it's to the point of that quote, you know, and it, and it also highlights something I think we ignore in health and performance is human variation. So when you think about all those connections and the variation in those connections, and we tend to do health and performance as one size fits all, it's it's a bad formula. Um, and, and if we attend to that human variation, we're actually protecting talent and developing it much better. Yeah, and I mean, I've heard you speak to that in terms of, and it's something that, you know, even at Canada Basketball, this idea of building just healthy people so we can build healthy athletes versus, you know, classically all, a lot of times, you know, the research is driven just towards sport performance in sort of four-week, eight-week, 12-week settings. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the things, you're, you, you know, you're, you're talking about there, and correct me if I'm wrong, because um, I see this as a conversation and I, I want to be tracking with you, is that we often have thought about the advancement of things in periodization of micro and macro cycles. Now, that's okay, but it doesn't account for the differences between each individual. And said another way, when any of us look at whatever our background is and look at stage models, stage models of development – don't account for people don't move through the stages at the same developmental timelines, either through growth, adaption, resiliency. And so when we apply these linear models, they don't fit because we are not linear beings. I'm breathing right now. Hopefully you are too. Hopefully our listeners are. You know, that's an oscillation. So when we inhale that stress, and we exhale, that's relaxation. And that oscillation accounts for, in a lot of ways, all that variation. So linear modeling has really been, uh, it doesn't protect talent. And it certainly adds to a lot of the numbers we see with overtraining. Um, and also it leads to a philosophy of overspecialization in some ways. So we have to start to kind of roll back a little bit and understand, you know, the brain and how complex it is. That alone teaches us a variation we need to coach to, teach to, educate to. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, overtraining is obviously something that we see so much today in, in college athletes with longer training days and the schoolwork and, you know, professional mm-hmm. athletes as they get mm-hmm. into the, the end of long seasons and even, you know, your, your desk worker who's uh, kind of burning the candle at both ends. Can you can you talk about how that impacts the brain and, and you know, symptoms and, and, and various strategies we can use to overcome that? I love what you said right there. It's really – and I love that you said symptoms because that's a good place to start actually. In the, in the, and this is why I'm starting there. Often we are taught even in a health basis but also from a Western standpoint that central nervous system signaling, whether it be headaches, you know, nausea, you know, and gut responses, a sour stomach, you know, general feelings of fatigue, uh, mood changes – is these are things to ignore 
and only to pay attention to when they're so far along that we're now in a state, because everything's on a spectrum, we're in a state of a disease or disorder. When actually they're signaling from the central nervous system about to return to resiliency, because the brain is the most complex system in the known universe, but it's the most complex survival system. And so it sparks off information through all the other systems, all 11 other systems that it utilizes and manages to teach us how to get back to resiliency. But we learn to ignore them. And so when we think about just general mood, general fatigue states, our content of thought and the mind and brain are two different things. Thought is an outgrowth of the mind uh, of the brain and it's actually a tool um we're still a lot we don't know but that's generally what we're seeing it has to do with survival connection to other people and then a redundancy in the system of learning and then application of learning but when we look at symptoms they're actually a sign how to remove to go back to resiliency hydration's a sign you know uh, being tired and underrested is a sign negative thinking is a sign but we're not taught to use those and move back to resiliency. And I suppose that gets to the art of, of coaching or even in, in medicine when, you know, pushing athletes towards that, that edge and, and, and getting into that sort of overreaching without, you know, pushing them over the edge into overtraining. So are there, are there certain cues or certain collection of patterns of symptoms that, that for yourself would be uh, something that coaches or, or docs working for teams can start to uh, really use as, as a, as that metric to see when an athletes really pushing pushing things too hard? Let's go with the let's go with the the three that we're all born with, and we only learn really kind of two. Um, you know, let's go with some of the strongest survival mechanisms that we have that that spark off, and that would be fight or flight. And then we'll talk about the third that no one ever really kind of learns, but uh, uh, is is really essential. So if we go fight or flight. Anxiety. In any pattern, whether we talk about an educational environment, a sport environment, a business environment, a health environment, we have to pay attention to that. That's a quick cue because it reduces so much of our brain's capacity to take information, see pattern recognition, and then learn. So if we're identifying for coaches, coaches are identifying anxiety. If we go old school, they would say, you know, we want to flood them. We want to overwhelm them. But the problem is now you extend out that learning, but you also have a chance of injury because of a fear response impact of other areas like motor coordination, strength and power output, pattern recognition. So you may be sending someone back into a situation that might be dangerous because they can't observe it properly and react properly. And then looking at what's the ultimate goal to improve resiliency. So just seeing someone anxious should be a cue that we have to adjust to the individual and find ways to reduce that anxiety so they can adapt. And that's just fundamental evolutionary. But we often ignore it. We see it as a weakness. Yep. We drive that person harder. And it's about managing that emotion because for some reason the brain on the secondary processing sees a threat. You know, the same thing is withdrawing. So the fight or flight, someone withdrawing and not leaning in scaffolding the task so it seems more bite-sized and they can manage the emotion more evenly. Thus, they will advance their learning quicker and establish a much better encoding in the memory process of being able to see the pattern and then do it again repeatedly. And then the last one no one ever talks about, but it's evolutionary in our autonomic nervous system, which is shutdown, which is gut responses, vomiting, nausea, sour stomach. In my work in concussion, 
um, you know, often people are still pushing through that point. And that's not a sign of a good workout. It's not a good sign in a concussion. It's not a good sign in any kind of moving towards resiliency. When we throw up, it's the last bastion of one of the earliest defenses we have when we're born. We're in the first six months of birth, we don't have fight or flight. We have shutdown, which is in the deepest part of the amphibian brain. That's why with you know sudden infant death syndrome, it's not about positioning. Now, yes, that's what we teach the public. You put the baby on its back. But it's because if the baby sleeps on its stomach, it doesn't have fight or flight. So it starts to suffocate. It can't flip over. We never lose that shutdown, which is gut related. And so anytime we see athletes that are starting to have gut reactions, you've overdosed. You've overdosed. And then we have to look at recovery curves that are going to be longer for that individual. And when you speak to the uh, you know that fight or flight response and the, even the, the gut connection, can you can you speak to the, um, the importance of you know the vagus nerve and how important that is in terms of uh, you yeah. know, recovery resiliency? This whole piece, whether it's what we eat or, or sleep, etc. Yeah, it, it's something when I use this example from my work with the elite military, but I think it's one everyone can relate to. If we think about when we see military or tactical performers, what do we protect most? They have a helmet on. Now, again, it has its limitations. It does. But you also can you also protect the core of the body. Reasonable internal organs. But really what you're protecting is the central nervous system, which is the brain, the optic nerve and retina and, you know, the spinal cord. And then what connects that to the rest of the body is the vagus nerve, the longest 10th cranial nerve in our body. And so it affects the brain, the heart and the stomach. So it's constantly giving information every millisecond through that. So gut reactions. So when we talk about gut instincts, that's vagus nerve response through the gut moving with blood and then working with neurotransmitters. So the vagus nerve is critical um, to emotional responses, heart synchronizing with the brain, which has to do with energy output, as well as bringing glucose and bringing vitamins and minerals and neurotransmitters. And then with the gut, having a proper gut biome so the neurotransmitters function properly and then get to the brain. Brain doesn't store very many neurotransmitters. So the vagus nerve really is effective in making sure the center of our body, which we protect with gear, is very much sampling proper information. If that starts to drop or go off, then we're going to have an out, you know, an outcome of inabilities, whether it be through vision, movement, uh, whether it be, you know, an understanding a pattern in front of us, properly socially engaging and seeing people's face properly. So we're going to engage with minimal encouragers or proper social connections or teamwork. So the vagus nerve, what we're learning about it, it is incredibly powerful for our health and well-being, and that's why some of the things we've learned in our life have an effect is because the impact of vagus nerve, like sleep, like hydration, like emotional management, it affects the vagus nerve. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, as a track and field and, and endurance athlete yourself, I mean, you know, that sport in general, the consumption of simple sugars, obviously, in terms of performance has to be really high yes. to achieve that level. And, and, and athletes kind of start to finish, especially college athletes, even with processed foods, kind of just being able to mm. grab it and, and, mm. and get in whatever they can. And of course, that has a huge impact on the microbiota, um, yes. that gut balance. And therefore, so can you speak to a little bit about, you know, how the food impacts that and how that can then impact, you know, cognitive function, decision making, things like that? 
it's a great question, Mark, and I know that you have some background in this area as well, and so and your expertise and with nutrition. But it, you know, it, it is fascinating what we've learned over just the last uh, decade, but really maybe even the last six years, how fast it's moved in understanding that although we've called the stomach the second brain, it it, it really uh, doesn't capture it enough how powerful the gut biome is in our everyday health. You know, the 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 million of bacteria in there that are helping to achieve balance through neurotransmitters. And what I would say about it is roll back, and you made a great comment about processed foods. So through evolution, when we look at evolutionary biology, we didn't eat for taste, we didn't eat for enjoyment, we didn't eat for ambiance, and we didn't eat for you know appearance, you know, how it looked on the plate. We ate for food churning into neurotransmitters. Another reason why we have the you know, that vomit response is not only to protect the central nervous system, it was helping to identify foods that had a positive response and produced neurotransmitters. But we've never lost that. And going back to your point about processed foods, what we're seeing from the literature is processed foods are downgrading the, that neurosignaling that the brain needs for essential functioning. And then if we look for essential functioning or baseline functioning for high performance, and so processed foods tend to disrupt the gut biome from its natural process of producing serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine. In fact, serotonin is really essential throughout our whole lifetime, and it's one of the neurotransmitters we can't make internally. We have to ingest food um, that's a precursor, tryptophan, like in turkey um, in, in, in bananas. And then we process it and turn that into serotonin. So nutrition is when you look at basic brain health, if you are not fundamentally managing nutrition to produce neurotransmitters, you are at a lower deficit to be able to perform no matter what you do. So the gut biome has really you know, opened our eyes to all the factors we can have that are bioavailable for brain health. And when I, when I speak of brain health, I'm also speaking about mental health. I, I don't like the term. I understand the history of it, but it doesn't serve us any longer because it doesn't describe anything scientifically. Gotcha. We still don't know what mental capacities are. We know what the brain is. We don't know everything, but we know quite a bit about it. And the brain is the organ where mental capacities come out of. Could you, you The gut biome, it, literally, um, there's been three studies now of a review of medical textbooks nutritional textbooks, exercise physiology textbooks, and even psychology textbooks are going to have to be rewritten because the gut biome and what we've discovered in the last six to, six to eight years. It's just, it's it's uh, really changed people's mind about lifestyle being the largest lever for health and performance. 100%. I mean, it's, yeah, it is amazing how, you know, even now we know blood sugar response is majorly determined by gut microbiota, which then impacts, yes. uh, you know, down the road, uh, insulin function, brain function, all these things. And <laughs> I love the fact that, you know, lifestyle medicine really has this, the biggest lever, which is obviously something that we oftentimes in clinical practice, you sort of boots on the ground, we tend to ignore. And even in high performance sport, it seems to be sometimes um, that low hanging fruit is, is not always uh, maximized. So can you speak to, let's go to sleep here as kind of a, you know, you mentioned that as the number one performance enhancer can you talk about how that impacts the brain and our biological drive to to sleep or nap 
Yeah, yeah. And again, it's another area that it's not new for research. Now, the gut biome relatively isn't either. It's more of some of the literature and then the technology to be able to evaluate. Sleep's kind of in that same realm. Um, probably the, the one area that's done the most amount of sleep is in industry and shift work and then the military. And then probably the third category is medicine, um, although I think they've done a lot Due to their um, similar environment to sport, there's hazing. And so they've been slow to go, well, you know, a doctor not slept in 32 hours, that's okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> but industry really has looked at this in, 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 in the military. But where we've gotten much better is the technology to evaluate. And the University of Rochester really did a groundbreaking study probably about six years ago in discovering that the brain cleans itself. So sleep becomes the number one performance enhancer because it has its own lymphatic system. And what they discovered is the top down that, like you said, some of these things don't get referenced. We, we know that we're a top down system. But what they discovered was the brain detoxifies its sleep in a deep sleep. But then every other system does. So it's timed. And thus, if you sacrifice sleep, other systems, including the brain, are not repairing. And our neuroplasticity, our ability to regenerate neurons throughout our lifetime and then repair the other systems is critical to resiliency, which is a neurophysiological term of that you are maintaining a level of readiness through sleep, hydration and eating, which then can be objectively measured. And so sleep bar none, uh, because you can go longer without food and water than you can without sleep. The range is about 32 to 72 hours about the vulnerability to death. And so if you think about that, and that, and that goes down to the individual. So if someone's health is not very good, it could be 32 hours. Mostly it's more towards 72. That's but, incredible. Yeah. So it, what happens there, let's go back to the vagus nerve. So if there isn't repairing and, and the vagus nerve can't carry communication through the center of the body, the brain, heart, the stomach, things start to shut down. And as they start to shut down, then we start seeing just protecting of the, of the central nervous system, you know, brain, spinal cord, retina. So the signaling just stops. And we all know this. We've all been, you know, underslept and attempted to go do something, made major errors, have been behind the wheel of the car and got drowsy. Uh, one of the, the greatest risks, actually more injuries to that than drinking and driving, although both are threatening, it's more to drowsiness behind the wheel. And, and think about the damage we can do to ourselves and others. But we are, our population is some of the worst sleeping in, in sport, but in general Western, it's about, it's about five hours. Now, cultures across the world are a little bit more, but most Western cultures are pretty bad. They're not in the healthy range of seven to 10. So when you think about regeneration, leading to resiliency, sleep has to have happen consistently. It doesn't have to be perfect. But one of the things that happens over time if we don't sleep is we have endocrine function disruption. We certainly have gut dysfunction, which then we're not producing neurotransmitters. But then the brain will start to shrink. And it can shrink up to 15%. Now, it will come back because we have neuroplasticity, but that takes a while. So you think about how, you know, that makes us so much less resilient to the demands. 
100%. I mean, I was recently talking to the guys down at Altus Performance, and they were mentioning how, you know, 70 hours a week is what they're shooting for for their elite athletes, which is, you know, as you mentioned, like that seven, eight, nine hours a night with maybe a nap for an hour and a half to two hours. Um, mm-hmm. But we see in college athletes, I mean, less than six hours is kind of the average. And even with the professional athletes with all the travel and, and circadian yeah. changes and whatnot, can you, can you speak to a little bit of what you've, you've sort of touched on here, how that impacts it in terms of performance on the, what, the learning, memory, decision-making, those, those aspects? Sure. Um, there's research. Uh, I'll go right to something that's going on right now. So there's been good research that's been done at times in the NBA and NHL. So in the NHL, with speeds of the game at 35 miles per hour, a skating speed or higher, puck speed of you know 50 up to 100, um, there is a difference they've seen, a noticeable difference between someone who sleeps seven hours, which is in the healthy range, and sleeps 10 in reaction time, decision-making, movement, and then obviously endurance and speed. And so when you can see just banking sleep or advancing sleep closer to practice time and game time where you extend your sleep out, uh, that's competitive advantage. Uh, We've seen Vancouver Canucks were the first, you know, to really adopt, let's look at this, our closest competitors, a two and a half hour flight. When we have to compete, we sometimes have to fly through three time zones. What do they discover from that? By just monitoring sleep and working on a behavioral program of sleep hygiene, because again, you can monitor it all you want. Monitoring should lead to information for the system to assist the athletes to change behavior and advance health. Measuring for measurement's sake doesn't do anyone any good. And in fact, it just makes more work and probably some bad karma at that. For sure. <laughs> uh, do you have any, you know, any preferred tools for if we do talk about sort of measurement and, and in that sense of, you know, whether it's heart rate variability or omega wave or even just resting heart rate? Are there certain things that, you know, uh, whether from a, um, a basic standpoint or a more involved can give us a, a, a snapshot of that central nervous system recovery? Sure, sure. You, you can speak about it in a couple different ways. And you mentioned some devices. So. So I'll try to give a, a, a value point at a number of different levels because not everyone has high resources. So you want to be able to work with something that can give you some uh, validity, but it's got some error variance all the way to things that are really going to have very little error variance and high validity. So let's look at just monitoring sleep. Just asking people about it from a st- subjective standpoint has a good amount of error. However, if it's followed up with a program in which you're educating about sleep, then it has much more value and becomes much more valuable. Measurement should be an intervention that leads to another intervention, a more informed one. So there's nothing wrong with using subjective stuff that you can find off of uh, either paper and pencil or you, if you're using data aggregators like Metrofit or CoachMePlus or Kinduct or uh, SMG, they all can send that stuff to people's smartphones. Um, th- that, that will certainly allow you a glimpse into it but it's got to be followed up with education because you got to change the behavior or reinforce the behavior reinforce drinks then we move on to a group that has got much smaller in price but it's wrist worn acugraph human motion type of measurement there is error in that still however um you know because you could lay there still and stare at the ceiling and it's going to say you slept uh, wonderfully the yeah. next gotcha <laughs> so it has some error But over time with data, it helps out, but it leads to more questions by the provider to enhance the behavioral changes that have to be made to enhance sleep. So again, a little bit more better validity, 
a little deeper dive, but it leads to being built into a program. Programs change behavior, not tools. They just inform both the athlete and, and the provider. Then really the gold standard is EEG mixed with respiration. Uh, and one of the companies that produces one of the best is, is advanced brain monitoring. Um, I've used their devices for years. It, it's a small device, uh, but it's pretty close to actually, uh, and I would say it is, it's the same as going into a hospital and doing a sleep study. I think if you're getting heart rate, respiration, HRV, and EEG, there you go. It may not be as many channels, but you're getting them in their normal sleeping environment that adds to the accuracy. But again, that tool's great, very valid. However, it's not embedded in a program where you're working directly with someone. It's not a fruitful tool. But measuring, you know, what gets measured gets managed, understood, and then optimized. And so you can do it at different levels, but it has to be a thoughtful process. Absolutely. Fantastic. And, you know, just a question in terms of some real uh, raw uh, questions we tend to ask even, you know, athletes in general focus, just that idea of when they first wake up in the morning, you know, how do they feel? Do they wake up with their alarm? Could they sleep an extra hour or two? Uh, Mm -hmm. Does that provide any sort of general insights or rough insights? It does. What you're touching on is is subjective information does have a downside, but it does have an upside too, especially if you're doing subjective and objective, which which we all should be trying to do because we have to connect with people. And connecting with that person and letting them be heard motivates them along the chain of also that behavior change. All right, you're showing a concern. They're giving input. They're showing purpose. You're showing purpose. So it leads to the uh, down the road. Where, where we have to be understood where subjective information is raw data and has error. And sleep, from a subjective standpoint, talk, asking about it, is a best guess. It's a third of our life we don't have access to without objective information. But by asking some of those, you're getting to emotion. And emotion is the best predictor of the status, from a subjective standpoint, of the status of the CNS. Our brain is a feeling ready, resilient, and, you know, feeling less fatigued. So those are fine questions. Um, I think the other questions you want to go to, and they're standardized measures out there that practitioners can use, you know, looking at a drowsiness scale, very simple scale, but it goes to some of the harder questions there, is drowsiness is a good measure of fatigue. And that is a subjective thing, but match for the objective, it's a great connecting point. It also gets them thinking about these, this is biofeedback from my brain giving me a signal that I need to go through my choice points to get more resilient. Um, you know, other measures will look at context. You got to look at the environment. Is, is it too hot? Is it too cold? Timing of sleep, the number of awakenings. So there are standardized measures out there that are free to the public that have reliability and validity. Um, but I think it always has to be embedded in a program. Otherwise, we're creating more work. And then we're creating sometimes distrust in our in our in the people that we're working with because we didn't answer the question why. Yep. Why's matter, especially an informed public or a misinformed public. We know there's a lot of noise on the internet, ton of it. Oh God, yeah. I mean, I mean, our athletes are coming with information. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, or anyone we're working with. And so our job is to, as practitioners, is to help them become more uh, literate about what they're looking at and let them dive deeper and come back with questions. But to help them focus where the information is solid, 
There's so much misinformation. It really is. Absolutely. I totally agree there. And uh, something that you've mentioned here a few times is obviously emotions and how important that is in cognitive function. In your book, you talk about how the emotional brain responds more quickly than the cognitive. Um, can you touch on that and the implications there for brain performance? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's keenly important to performance. And one of the things I think we do in performance environments, and this leads back to the illusions and of, of toughness, mental toughness and grit. They're, they're not scientifically valid. They're complete illusions because they don't take into account the very question you asked me, neurophysiology. We are wired to survive. It gets no tougher than that. It gets no grittier than that. And where emotions play in this is the evolution of our brain. So we were wired to survive, and our first survival, um, major survival tool is emotions. It gives us signals about our environment and contextually um, information that we're taking in and patterns we're taking in on a secondary level of the brain. So it's not conscious. The emotions are bringing it to our consciousness. So when we see threats or we see positive things or we see things that are wonderful to engage in, we're seeing a pattern there and emotions are cueing us in about what to do or how to engage. And that's throughout evolution and that we're still that way. So we are a limbic system driven brain, feel first, then think, goes to the limbic system, amygdala, then it goes to the prefrontal cortex right beyond our forehead where we think and process and go through choices. And then it goes to higher functions on the brain um, leading to maybe motor coordination or movement um, or addressing our attention sequences. But emotions really, really run the show in sport and life. Um, and that's why there's such strong indicators on a subjective level. And then when you add objective measurement, we can really kind of understand a person's resiliency. They're so predominant in our day, we experience hundreds of emotions a day. But here's where the rubber meets the road. In our culture, when we talk about sport, which is just a microculture, um, a cosm of our smaller culture, we're taught to ignore emotions. So we're taught to ignore our resiliency and our health. And mental toughness and grit pervades that theory. It stands in the face of that performance is some amorphous thing that doesn't touch health. And you just need to be a little bit tougher and grittier. Could we get more vague? There's no for sign. sure, for sure. And in terms of that idea of emotional intelligence, I mean, you speak of some of the yep. characteristics of, of a person that has high levels of emotional intelligence, yep. and obviously how that would translate uh, to performance. Can you can you touch on that? Sure. Um, it, you're touching on emotional intelligence has been around for a while, but what's grown with it, and, and and I think what is often missed when people go take courses on emotional intelligence, I'm not against them, but they're not taking it now to what we know about the neurobiology, but. It is really, really important for any of our athletes or anyone to know how to identify their emotions. Because if you can identify emotions, then you can manage them or utilize them to your advantage. Then you can actually connect with people better, and then we have better leadership and better teamwork. But if you can't identify emotions, and then you blunt them, what we actually see are internal internal organ issues, scarring of cardiac tissue, damage to the gut biota, you know, misfiring of motor coordination where injuries happen. A lot of injuries are related to processing information, emotionally, you know, reacting to it, suppressing it, and then we move just slightly wrong and now we have a failure in the orthopedic system. 
you know, many of them are the, that way. Some of them are just failures because it's just an overload, but often they're emotionally related. And then, and then we see it changes lifestyle issues. So we notice that emotional health is driven to internal organ health, but also overall brain health. You know, it, it stimulates emotions, also stimulate going back to a question I had earlier, what we're attracted to nutritionally. So we could be taking in things that are not healthy because we're not managing emotions. Because we're dropping cortisol into our system, uh, a stress hormone, and we're not buffering it. And, and it's building up. And so we're reacting to that as opposed to managing it. So it has so many powerful uh, sequencing, feedback loops. But we're, when we're taught to ignore them, our health degrades and our ability to perform degrades in whatever environment. 100%. And I mean, obviously, stress being such a big component of that, whether it's the stress from induced by training with the elite athletes or even just, you know, I think it's about 75% of doctors' visits now, there's some sort of stress related impact there. And of course, its right. impact on, you know, frontal lobe activity and prefrontal right. cortex. Um, can you speak to that? I know that there's a heavy concentration of dopamine receptors in that, in that frontal lobe and, and how yep. that impacts the function and development. Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to touch on that. What you're touching on, too, is it, it, is stress. And, and I think in some situations that terminology is correct. But in most situations, it's not. And from a neurobiology standpoint, it's not stress. It's trauma. Gotcha. Anytime you overload a system, it's trauma. Because we're wired to survive, it's interpreted that way. And when we get these negative emotional responses and then these feedback loops with biological uh, consequences, endocrine consequences, cortisol, dropping of testosterone, dropping of estrogen, you know, then we're moving towards trauma. And when we know when we imprint trauma, trauma takes a required effort to recover from. And I'll go with kind of what you're talking about with dopamine and I'll give something to everyone that we all are doing right now or have access to. So uh, in 60 Minutes just did a piece on this, but I talk about it uh, in the book, uh, The Brain Always Wins, and I talk about it extensively with my performers. Our smartphones are designed for addiction. They're designed for a stress response. They're designed for cortisol response. They're designed for dopamine to fire in the same way cocaine does and sugar. So when you look at that constant stress that turns into trauma, and I'll explain why I use that term related to a phone. If I stand in front of a group of people and I ask them just to raise their hand to the answer to this question, how many people would get anxious if you were not near your phone right now? And when it's a group, I could say a group of 50, a group of 100, the majority of people have their hand up. So that's a trauma reaction. That's acute stress. And so dopamine is going to fire when they're connected to it. And when they're not connected to it, dopamine is not going to fire. But what's going to respond is an acute fight or flight response through the amygdala. Uh, Cortisol, you know, certainly dropping into the bloodstream. And if we think about that load, now often load is talked about in sport and life, but it's referred to only in the practice environments. In the book, we talk about it's actually a total load. So when I'm working with teams, working in the military, when we're, we're looking at things, we're looking at total load. Their life affects their sport, their sport affects their life, or you can go the other way with life performers. So life affects their occupation, their occupation affects their life. So we're constantly being inundated with things where we're constantly getting you know, more and more stress cycles in a linear fashion leading to trauma. And then dopamine is firing so much 
that we're also going to get adrenal fatigue. We're up and after and up and after. So we're going up and down, up and down, up and down. But we're also not getting micro doses of rest in there. So what does it lead to? An addiction of linear stress. We get addicted to stress, but we get weaker from it without rest. That is a fantastic point. And I mean, in your book, you've got a great quote from Bruce Lee there. It's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessential. And, you know, for me, one of the areas that you mentioned in your book, which is checking your emails first thing in the morning or before bed. I mean, that especially the first thing in the morning is one that's been difficult to to really hack away because it's so deeply ingrained. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you share a few other areas that people can can help to kind of reduce that, uh, you know, whether it's habits or lifestyle changes? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you're right about the email. It, you know, one other reason why the email is addictive is it, it does get connected to emotion. But we have to think about our smartphones are not the only thing using high-definition screens. So our high-definition screens on our tablets and laptops are actually producing some of that response as well. And so we have to start – and I have no problem with technology. I want to be clear to your listeners. I work with <laughs> technology. Sure. I love technology. I think of it like the industrial revolution. We're just going through a technology revolution. But if we're not mindful, we don't have these conversations like you and I are having, Mark. We don't think about how we use them as tools because the industry is not thinking about two things, how they integrate to the brain and its health. And many of them are purposely designing them to be addictive. So we have to be thoughtful about how we use it as a tool. So that right there, I would say to people, start being mindful how you use it. Because the research would show that people go to their email and their smartphone every 15 minutes, even without notification. Wow. I can compare those uh, patterns to addiction with heroin, with cocaine, with alcohol, Not necessarily use. Now, remember, everything is a chain of events neurologically. So when you look at patterns with alcohol and other forms of addiction, it's not necessarily the use that produces the addiction effect. It's the chain of events. It's thinking about it. It's thinking about where you're going to get it, how you're going to use it. And so it's a chain of neurological events. And so we have to start thinking about how do I use these tools? And I might use them to my advantage. So to your heart of your question, efficiency. How do I become more efficient? Because my brain only produces 15 to 20 watts of energy. And it's really selfish with it. If I waste it, then I'm becoming less resilient and ready. The, the, the other thing I would say is absolutely trying to figure out where you have mic- take micro breaks in the day. And that's working off a theory that we don't use in sport, hormesis. So... Hormesis has been around in a long time. And, you know, for political and monetary reasons, much of the medical science, and especially in pharmacology, uses dose curves that are linear. But again, let's go back to our early conversation. We're not linear beings. Yep. Hormesis takes that into account. And what it takes into account is basically its theory is if you dose smaller, the effect grows larger. So we don't overdo it. We don't overtrain. So the effect of taking microdosing breaks over time builds a bigger effect, and it also works with human motivation. If I tell someone, okay, I want you to take a break for 30 minutes and do whatever, I, I could say meditate, I could say do some muscle relaxation, I could say go for a walk. Um, you know, that's you know from a human motivation standpoint, that's a big ask. But if you engage them in choice and you make the choice smaller and you hermetically dose it, the effect gets larger 
and so does the motivation, intrinsic motivation to continue to do it because it's a felt emotional experience too and it's a choice. So I would say taking micro breaks and do whatever you want to do. Make the choice as long as it gives you energy back. 10-minute breaks, have, uh, we've looked at that uh, research You know, in the military, in NASA, in industry. It does have an effect on alertness, on mood, and then that just overall feeling of ready for my next part of my day or my next task. So it does have a positive effect. So in that, and, and in workplace environments or in sport, we do a lot of linear stress. Work, work, work. I'll give you an example. So I'll use I'll use a physical example because everyone can relate to it because everyone can relate to running. Even if you're not a runner, you've run to catch a train, you've run to catch a for plane. Sure, for you, sure. Yeah, you've ran. So if I'm your coach, I'm gonna really, really be a bad coach. So if I ask everyone to run 10 miles a day, and if you're a runner, run 20 for for 14 days, and then I ask them how they're gonna feel, most of them are gonna feel pretty crappy. And they're going to hate me, which they should. If I ask them to, so now to do two weeks of training and I want you to sit on the couch, watch really bad daytime TV that will totally melt your brain, um, pick up, you know, eating horrible foods, processed foods, and maybe smoking and drinking. How are you going to be on the 15th day? You're going to feel horrible. We have to dose in a way that becomes equivalent. So a little bit of effort out and a little bit of recovery. So that's an that's a sine curve, right? You know, that's just kind of like, you know, stress and then a downward spiral to recovery that pulls us back up to do some work and back and forth. But we don't do that in our environments. It's all linear. So if we move away from linear just a little bit, we can become more resilient. That's a great point. And I uh, recently had um, Dr. Martin Kabbalah on, who's a you know, hit training expert down here at McMaster University, and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, his lab showing that you know three minutes of interval training was just as good as the standard recommendation of 150 minutes in a week. So a physical yep. activity. So I mean, it is you know like you mentioned, that is just just a cr- crucial crucial aspect. And circling back to the stress there, I mean, I, you know, studies around uh, that sort of duality between nature and technology. I mean, I'm always amazed at the studies that show if you just get outside in nature, walk around, even if it's a, uh, a park in a city, you still get a dramatic decrease in and a lot of the stress hormones, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, and it is. It's fantastic. And actually, what's amazing about that, we don't quite understand why that is. But there is, like you said, there has to be some connection. And I trust we will find it as we're continuing to map the brain. There's some connection of our connection to that. More than likely, it's a number of different factors. One, it can be grounding. You know, it's it's connecting to nature. And we, we do ground from nature, evolutionary-wise, we have. It's actually seeing a different context that is serene and relaxing. It's probably connecting with, you know, most people have some sort of memories about nature that are positive, and it connects in there. But also the reduction of overall westernized noise. We forget that our environment affects us. And through the advent of technology and how things have gotten faster in our work environment, moving to an environment that's much slower, much quieter, is likely to have that effect. So it affects our vagus nerve, going back to something we talked about, that regulation of the whole center of the body through the 10th cranial nerve. Heart slows down. You know, digestive function may you know decrease or balance. And then brain function drops a bit by the visual systems and what information is coming in to bombard the brain, that information processing. So it's, it's a fascinating thing, absolutely. What a simple technique. The other place you can take that farther is the same effect is gained 
and I'll encourage people who work in cubicles to do this, have a picture of somewhere in nature that you enjoy and like, either on your computer or just a photo of it, or draw one up on your computer and find one for 10 minutes. We see the same reaction. Just seeing nature gets the brain to calm. Wow. There's a fascinating connection there. I'm excited as we kind of push that forward and see what are all the interconnections there. Yeah, that's it's just amazing. I mean, if we uh, even dovetail that into what you talk about in your book, which is you know community socialization, you have some, a great quote here about you know our social interactions play a crucial role in developing our sense of self, our overall life experience, and the outcome we create. We have what we might think of as a social brain. We are truly wired to connect. Which is, can you speak to that a little more and this idea of community and how that impacts the brain? Yeah, I I think it's it's a powerful thing we overlook. Um, I think in sport. We, we don't overlook it when we talk about cohesion and teamwork, but I don't think we necessarily institute it well. Um, we are wired to socially connect. Um, you know, any of our, your listeners that have been around small children or have, you know, children of their own, just a mother or father with an infant gazing at a child, neural connections are happening. And it's happening on the emotional level of the brain, but also the connection of that as you know, you read the quote from the book, the connection of that child to the parent and and the parent to the child. There is a self-other kind of connection that's happening there. Somewhat what we would call tribalism, teamwork. We're connected. Um, the first way they do it is through scent. And then as the eyes form, it is through that visual feedback loop. But as we know, just that gaze creates that connection. And that early gaze has a lot to do with how that child will will establish emotional management, going back to evolutionary biology. It's our survival system. And if there isn't a good attachment and that gazing happening often, that there actually will be deficits in the emotional management. The cool part is we have neuroplasticity. We just have to identify those areas of, of polish and develop them later through the long-term you know, development. But that gazing and that touch really, really matters. Some of the earliest research in psychology was really um, looking at this interpersonal neurobiology. They just didn't have the ability to do some of the deeper dives we do now. So some of the earliest book uh, work, and we talk about it, is work with monkeys. You know, monkeys and and great apes, um, they, we shared 95% of their genetic makeup. And we've assumed for a long time that we are much more advanced than them. And actually, that's untrue in a lot of ways. Our brains are very, very similar. And when they looked at Reese's monkeys and they put them into situations where they could receive comfort, tactile stimulation comfort, which is critical in those early developmental times as an infant, that they would, they would get depressed. They would show behaviors of depression. Now, we know what that is now. That's an anaphylactic depression. And there is a biological gut-brain interaction. And then they put re- uh, monkeys into situations where they could seek comfort, hold something comfortable. And what happened was they would emotionally regulate. So we never lose that ability. So when we think about social interpersonal neuro- neurobiology and from an athletic standpoint, teamwork, if we're not creating an environment that's engaging, intrinsic, and managing emotions – What we're doing is creating chaos in which people are going to adapt to it in very different ways, none of which or all of which are going to be adaptive. Some will, some won't. 
So when we think about creating teamwork, we have to create one in which it's socially connecting on the emotional level. But then it goes back to what we talked about. Often sport ignores emotion through these fake Hollywood ethos of toughness and grit. And so when you disregard that, it's harder to make teams. I suppose that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, certain teams, whether it's the San Antonio Spurs or the New England mm-hmm. Patriots, are teams that seem to have this idea of team and, and everyone being on the same page. You know, what are some of the qualities there, and how you know how can other teams develop that? If it's uh, you know, you can often see teams that have a lot of talent, but again, just don't seem to be playing on the same page, don't seem to be playing for each other. Um, are there qualities there that can be developed, or is it just the right mix of of people? You touch on a number of things that you have to think about. So I really like the, the, the degree of your question. It's, it's layers and it's, it's a thoughtful process for sure. So first, if we go to pro sport, but even we go to college sport, which in, for my intents and purposes, it's the largest pro league in the world. It is. Um, whatever the NCAA says about amateurism, for sure. um, it's not true. Um, it's about one is selection, right? You do have to select people that match your culture. All right. So selection and really using, you know, psychology and neuroscience and other metrics to understand the profile of the person you're looking for. Now, they're not going to tell you everything. And anyone that tells you I have a measure or I have a neuroscience kind of device that's going to tell you everything about everyone and they're going to be a fit. You need to walk the other way. What they do is allow you a little bit of a deeper dive and inform. It gives you more information. But then that goes back to culture. Now, we know what culture is. We've had it defined for many, many years through sociology and social psychology. But the term high-performance culture, and I have, I'm working on a paper related to this, from an empirical standpoint, that research doesn't exist. From an empirical, quantitative standpoint, it doesn't exist. And there's only two studies currently out there that look at high-performance culture from a quantitative standpoint. So we really have to look at culture building from the literature from sociology and social psychology, norms, mores, these types of things. And so culture is based upon norms, which is based upon communication. So you have to decide who you are. And so buying a new T-shirt with a new slogan every year is not a culture. And so there has to be a thoughtful (laughs) process. Then you evaluate And then it goes to really we got to look at are you trying to make a self-determined, motivating environment? And that goes to self-determination, motivation psychology, which goes with neurobiology. And so we we really focus on steric and, uh, you know, carrot and stick way too much. It's a behavioral approach, but it actually loses its utility because we have emotions and we can think. So – if you want to demotivate someone quickly, pay them for what they love to do. Gotcha. <laughs> but if you really want to motivate them, then you need to connect interpersonally neurobiology, give them a say in the environment, autonomy, control, make them a part of the process, and especially at the college levels and, and pro levels. Think about the human intelligence they have and game intelligence. And often coaches want to dictate to them rather than see them as resources and ask more questions and ask for more input. So autonomy and control is a wiring in neurobiology about safety, right? If you if you tell a group of kids don't play on that rock, the, that those rocks, you've pretty much invited them to do so. Absolutely. 
just like don't hit it in the water, right, for the golfer? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're wired to need a level of control, and, and there are different degrees due to human variation, but we need to give autonomy and control as a part of the culture. Then we certainly want to engage with them on that level. We don't want to just give it words. So we want an action about holding up the cultural standards. You know? And then we want to replay back to them the competence. So winning is only one way that a culture is becoming competent. But there are multiple ways of individually teaching someone about their competence and reinforcing it. And this goes back to you know, where behaviorism was right, and we've always known it, but we continue to do it. So Skinner realized that punishment was not effective. Reinforcement was a negative reinforcement, removing something. And so when you add that to the neuroscience of what we know now and the neurobiology of motivation, that we need to be using much more positive reinforcement with corrective education. Screaming is not education. I joke with people, you know, when I when you know when I'm doing coaching seminars. So if your what was your hardest coach, you know, course in, in your academic work in college, if your professor stand in front of you and screamed at you, would have made it any easier? Doesn't exactly. Fear and so culture is built upon communication, norms and mores, and then really human motivation, and then factors of maintaining health. Because if you don't work towards maintaining the health of your environment, whether it's the performers themselves or the leaders, which are always left out, coaches, executives, their health is a parallel process to their performers, tends to be pretty poor, then you're building things on sand. But more research in this area needs to be done because people throw the term high-performance culture around or high-performance environment, and it has no empirical uh, studies currently. So we have to go with what's kind of out there with health, human motivation, neuroscience, and then communication. Fantastic, John. That's uh, very, very well said. And I definitely want to respect your time here as we, we wrap things up. So could we, if we can shift gears a little bit and just sure. uh, maybe tell listeners a little about your morning routine. What uh, what does that look like? Are you a coffee drinker? What is your morning uh, routine like? <laughs> You've brought up one of my weaknesses. So my, as I like to say, my EPO is caffeine. There you go. Hey, <laughs> we love to talk coffee here. So that's fantastic to hear. Do you really? Oh, yeah. And I and I, when I was up in Toronto just a number of days ago, um, I was uh, escorted to a very good co- a coffee shop downtown. Don't ask me to to, to repeat where it was because I can't remember. I just know the coffee was good, so I do. But I, but over the years, I've had to really watch that level because, as we know, those individual differences, and I certainly don't want to overshoot. Um, you know, and that's something probably you and I both work on with our athletes, right? Is for sure. Is, when you use and how much you use. But my morning routine really is, is exercise first. Um, I don't want to touch anything engaging in the sense of my professional work unless I've exercised first because of if it's enhancing of my neurotropic factor, the health on the brain, but also creativity. Um, I was a competitive athlete, but now I find it so helpful, obviously, for my health, but my creativity, that stream of consciousness, whether, you know, I'm doing some cycling or I'm doing some running or I'm doing some weightlifting or yoga. It's, it's a stream of consciousness. Stuff is percolating in the background. And I often get some of the my best ideas during that time. So it's it's purposeful for two reasons. And so it's always exercise. Then it's hydration. Then it's, it's eating and then it's getting to work. Um, and I usually try to do a bit of writing before I even dive into email. 
and because I've, I've kind of stoked up that creativity where email, we know we kind of, yeah, it requires some creativity, but we know emails pile up. So we kind of try to keep them short and direct and, and clear and concise. So I think it's a, it's a, um, the exercise helps the focus on that, but I like to use the creativity first thing in the morning. I really like that. And that's definitely something I'm trying to get more of. Uh, I struggle with that email first. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to take your lead on that and run with it. So, um, but John, your book, the brain always wins phenomenal insight. So many great actionable, uh, tips, um, for, for readers on the nutrition lifestyle movement side of things. Uh, where can people pick up the book? Where can people keep in touch with all the great work you're doing? Uh, I pr- appreciate that, and I appreciate your your, your knowledge about the book. Um, you know, they they can get the book on Amazon directly, as well as on the the website. The brain always wins. Um, we are constantly posting things. One of the things that is uh, we want to do about the book, Chris Parker and I, who Chris is a professor at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. We are not gurus. We are standing on the shoulders of others, and so. Um, at each end of each chapter, there are additional readings, but we also post additional readings on the website for each chapter, uh, infographics, uh, podcasts that we've listened to and approved, uh, videos from YouTube that we've seen and approved, and then additional research. So you can come at this at every level. We wrote the book because we generally don't learn much about the brain, but it is the center for our health and performance. And we really wanted to bridge that gap, and and it really came out of conversation of a lot of my work with you know elite sport, elite military, but also concussion. And I'm amazed about sitting with a child and their parents are there, and like I sit in too because I don't. Why haven't we learned this stuff? Um, in in I think it's important that we do. Um, we wanted to create that foundation. But the other reason why we wrote the book too was. My work with the elite military, and I come from a military family, much of what we know about the brain is due to an ultimate sacrifice, due to battlefield um, you know, care, you know, due to head injuries. And then the lasting, unfortunately, wounds of war are often the ones that aren't seen on the brain level or are seen through traumatic brain injury. So in Canada, the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, um, we are donating portions of, of the book sales two veteran groups that focus on brain health and focus on the health of veterans. And so really it, it was a mission to write the book about filling that gap, but also supporting the people that give service to us that often don't get service themselves. That's phenomenal. So that's, um, we'll definitely put links up uh, on the page that hosts this. And uh, yeah, it's fantastic to be having portions of that go to those uh, great organizations. So thanks so much, uh, John, for, for taking the time out today. And thanks again for everyone tuning in. As always, you can find all the links and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, keep them coming. I'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And if you enjoy the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.